term that we find in the book of Proverbs, and that is the fear of the Lord. I was thinking about that this afternoon and this evening. That term, that concept, that quality of living and having the fear of the Lord is something that I find quite lacking in many arenas of the church today. We like to see God as just our old buddy, good old pal up in the sky. And he is your intimate friend. But the Bible tells us a few times in the book of Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But fools shun wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is something that is not to mean that you're afraid of God, that you fear God. Uh Uh-oh, if I make the wrong turn, man, he's going to just elbow me right in the face. I'm afraid of God, like the Wizard of Oz shaking in his presence. That's not the idea at all. It's, It's this wholesome, reverential awe. This reverential awe of God. I revere him so much. Oh, he's my friend. And Jesus said, I don't call you servants anymore, but friends. But have you noticed that every New Testament author said that they were servants of the Lord? Even though Jesus said, you're my friends. Paul, a servant of the Lord. Peter, a bond slave of Jesus Christ. It was an honor to serve him. Yet I find a lot of people not having that quality of the fear of the Lord, not living in the fact that, or in that awareness that my life is to please God and I'm ashamed if I displease Him. Living under that conscious awareness of His presence that His eye is upon me. Paul said, we aim always, whether absent or present, to make our lives pleasing unto the Lord. Joseph lived that way. Even when no one else was looking, he knew that God's eye was upon him. Even when Potiphar's wife started coming on to him and he thought perhaps, hey, I'm in Egypt, I'm not in Canaan anymore, no one will know, he knew that God would know. And he said, God forbid that I should sin against God or my master Potiphar in doing this thing and he ran out. He was a man of integrity who wanted to make sure that God's reputation was kept at a high level before the people that he was working with and for, and uh, the Lord got the uppermost. That's just sort of a hallmark of his life. Chapter 48 is when Jacob, Joseph's father, has come back or has now come to Egypt. He's lived there about 17 years, the same amount of time that Joseph was under his father's care. Joseph was 17 years of age when his brother sold him into Egypt. And I think it's interesting that Jacob, coming to Egypt, spends 17 years now under Joseph's care, sort of a reciprocal agreement by the hand of God. But Joseph hears that his dad, Jacob, is sick. And so he quickly takes his sons to go see him. And uh, don't know how far we'll get tonight, but if it be God's will and we finish the book of Genesis tonight, It has an interesting end, and we'll just sort of remark on it toward the end. But Joseph is the last of the patriarchs. We saw the beginning of man, the beginning of sin, the beginning of all these things, and we were introduced in chapter 12 to Abraham, and then to Isaac, and then to Jacob. Jacob's still around, but Joseph is that last patriarch that we read about. So much of the book of Genesis is devoted to him, to his story. God has made some unique promises that after this chapter, the patriarchs die and there's a new shift in Israel's history as we get into the book of Exodus. The patriarchs were given promises. God said to Abraham, I will make you a great nation. And then God said, I will also give you the land upon which you are now standing, the land of Canaan. It will be yours. Walk up and down it. It's length and it's breadth. It all belongs to you. And then he says, I will make you a blessing, and in you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Those three parts of his promise. I'll make you a great nation. That was, of course, fulfilled as the brothers went down to Egypt. And they were there and they populated it from 70 people to over a couple of million people. The land 
that God promised them. They took it some 400 years later, during the time of the Exodus. They left Egypt, went across the wilderness after 40 years of messing around and wandering. God finally brought them into the land of Canaan. And God promised them that they would inhabit that land, and they've been in that land for the last several thousand years, in and out of that land, for several reasons. The third part of that promise is something that does pertain to you, whether you think that the first two really don't pertain to you. Certainly the last one does. God said, Abraham, in you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. He was speaking of the Messiah. And it's because of that third part of the promise that we're sitting here tonight reading our Bibles, worshiping the Lord. Because God keeps his promises. And as I read of the promises God made to Abraham, and I look today that the Jews are in their land, and I see that God made them a great nation, and I see that the nations of the earth have been blessed because through the line of Israel the Messiah has come, I sit back and I just say, God, if you can keep your promises even to this day to somebody that you made it a long time ago to, then your word, your promises will never fail me. I can hang my soul upon them. Well, in chapter 48, an interesting thing happens. Joseph brings his kids, Ephraim and Manasseh, or I should say at this point, Manasseh and Ephraim, from first to second born. And he brings them to his father, Jacob, so that Manasseh would receive the blessing of being the firstborn. And so he sets Manasseh on Jacob's right leg and Ephraim on the left so that Jacob would take his right hand, the hand of blessing, and place it upon Manasseh, conferring upon him the promogeniture or the law of the firstborn that he would receive the blessings, the family priesthood, and double the income. Jacob is old, but nonetheless he knows what he's doing and he crosses his hands over putting his right hand on Ephraim's head, his left hand on Manasseh's head. Now, this really bugs Joseph. Because Joseph thinks that Manasseh should be the one that is blessed. But this is done knowingly because it was God who was directing him. Let's look at verse 8. Then Israel saw Joseph's sons, and he said, Who are these? Now, he had seen them before, but... Hey, the guy's 140-some years old. He's old and perhaps his eyes are dim. You know, in the Near East, eye disease is very, very prevalent. In fact, it's probably the most prevalent disease still to this day. A blowing sand, bright sun, war wounds, and besides that, over in the Middle East, there has been, um, it's called ophthalmia neonatorum which is a gonorrhea of the eyes, basically, from birth. It's uh, something that is within the uh, system of the woman, and when the baby goes through the birth canal, it, uh, that bacteria gets in the conjunctiva, the mucous membranes of the eyelids, and sometimes, if it's not treated, that baby can go blind within weeks, totally blind. That's why children are treated with that salve on their eyes today when they come out, so that uh, this congenital ailment won't be passed on to the next generation. So uh, he's old at this point and uh, he sees Joseph saying, well, who are these kids? Joseph said to his father, they're my sons. They're your grandkids whom God has given me in this place. And he said, bring them to me and I will bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him kissed them, embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I had not thought to see your face, but in fact God has also shown me your offspring. So Joseph brought them from beside his knees, bowed down with his face to the earth, and Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near to him. And then Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head, who was the younger and his left hand on Manasseh's head, guiding his hands knowingly, for Manasseh was the firstborn. The right hand was considered the hand of strength, not to put down those of you who are lefties. 
It was just a metaphor. The right hand is the hand of strength. In the New Testament, it says to give each other the right hand of fellowship. It doesn't mean that you have to shake with your right hand. If you shake with your left hand, fine. But the idea is that that's the hand of strength and confidence. When Benjamin was born, Rachel, when she was dying and it was a hard labor, she said, call his name Benoni, son of my sorrow. He said, no, call him Benjamin, son of my right hand, the son of strength. So he takes his right hand, the hand of blessing for the firstborn, crosses his hands, puts it on Ephraim's head. And uh, he blessed Joseph and he said, God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has fed me, All my life long, to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. Let my name be named upon them. And the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude of the midst of the earth. Now we're going to see that Ephraim knew exactly what he was doing, conferring the strength to Ephraim, not Manasseh. Ephraim was younger. Jacob was doing this knowingly. He remembered the prophecy that was given his own mom. You see, he was also the younger kid. And that the birthright should go to his older brother. Now, he stole his brother's birthright. He didn't steal it, actually. He just, by uh, trickery and conniving, uh, traded a bowl of chili so that he could have his brother's birthright. And so Jacob knew that God does really care nothing for age or position or tradition. God's ways are not our ways. One of the things I like about God is that God blows people's traditions right out of the water. When the prophet Samuel was looking for a man who would lead the nation, he comes to the house of Jesse because God tells him to, looking for the next king because Saul had failed God. And so he looks at Jesse's firstborn, this huge, good-looking guy by the name of Eliab. And he thought in his heart, ooh, this guy's got to be the Lord's anointed. Just look at him. He looks like a king. He's got that statuesque kind of a face and that build. Ooh, and he's so tall, it's got to be, this is the king. God says, nope. He looks at the secondborn. He says, well, not as good as the firstborn, but good specimen. That's got to be him. The Lord says, Samuel, do not look at the height of his stature or how good he looks. I've rejected him. For man looks at the outward appearance, God looks upon the heart. God's call can come to anyone at any age for any reason. God didn't care about the tradition of choosing the oldest. God sort of changed that several times in the Old Testament. Now when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. So he took hold of his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people. And he also shall be great, but truly the younger brother shall be greater than he. And his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. And so it was that historically the tribe of Ephraim became more dominant and stronger than the tribe of Manasseh. So much so that when the kingdom split eventually into two sections, the ten tribes to the north, the two tribes to the south, They were known as either Judah and Israel or Judah and Ephraim because Ephraim was the dominant tribe and grew in strength. In fact, it was Jeroboam who was an Ephraimite who led the rebellion of the ten northern tribes. So he became dominant, not in a really good way, but certainly he became stronger. And so he blessed them that day saying, By you, Israel will bless, saying, May God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. And thus he said Ephraim before Manasseh. Because of verse 20, Jewish fathers to this day, every Friday evening, confer this blessing upon their children, the sons. On Shabbat Eve, as the mother of the house lights the candles and brings in the Sabbath blessing, and they sit down, and the father reads to his wife Proverbs 31 and blesses her in the name of the Lord. It's a beautiful, beautiful ceremony. 
It'd be good for some of you to dig it up and just practice that some Friday evening. They have a long, leisurely, and a dressed-up meal. It's customary to dress up and look really spiffy. You're not going out, you're staying in, but you're looking your best. And then prayers are said, and you eat this great Sabbath meal. The father will turn to his sons and say, May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh because of the blessing here that was conferred by Jacob upon Joseph's sons. And Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm dying, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you one portion above your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. In verse 22, the words one portion in Hebrew is the words shechem. Or as the Hebrews say it, Shechem, one portion. Shechem is the area of Samaria where Jacob's well was. And remember in, what is it, John's Gospel, when uh, Jesus goes to Sychar, it says, the plot of ground that Jacob gave to Joseph. It's where Jesus went and saw the Samaritan woman at the well. That was the place that was a personal gift from Jacob to his son Joseph when they would get back in the land. Now we come to chapter 49. Chapter 49 has always interested me for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's a deathbed scene. I don't know if you've ever been at a person's deathbed, but a person's last words are very important. Because even if that person has not been honest throughout their life, they will usually become very honest upon their deathbed. I say usually, not always, but usually they'll just open up. I mean, there's not much left for them. And if things need to be set right, they'll set it right at that point. I've, I've sat at several deathbeds. I've watched people die or go to heaven. And uh, their last words I always try to take note of. What's interesting about this deathbed scene is that his last words are prophecies. He gathers all of his kids together. It's a heavy moment. There's Joseph and all of his brothers. They've been restored now. Forgiveness has uh, flowed between them. And now dad gets them all together and speaks to each one of them. Goes from the oldest to the youngest, confers his blessing upon them, and his last words prove to be prophetically true, and it speaks of their future in the latter days. Now, Jacob's an old man. And yet, and I find this kind of neat, that he's able to keep track and remember by order all of his children's name, and there's a lot of them. My parents have always gotten us mixed up. I'm the youngest of four boys. And especially now, my father is uh, just about 78 years old. And so, uh, you know, when he wants to get my attention when I'm with him, he'll go, uh, Jim, um, I mean, uh, Rick, I, I mean, uh, Bob, I, I mean, Skip. I mean, he'll cover all of them until he finally, I'm the last one. And you'd think that with this many kids, he would get them mixed up. But he's able to just, by the Spirit of God, remember each one, know their character, and prophesy what's going to happen to them in the last days. And if you have a modern translation, by that I mean uh, New American Standard, New King James, NIV, you notice that the way it's set out, the text itself looks differently than the previous chapter, right? It's set out in stanzas, in Hebrew poetry, what we call Hebrew parallelism. It's It's the longest poem in the book of Genesis. The words don't rhyme in English, nor do they rhyme in Hebrew. When the Hebrews write poetry, they do not rhyme words. They rhyme thoughts. There are parallel or antithetical thoughts that are laid out. That's how Proverbs, Psalms, Ecclesiastes, and the poetical books are written, and thus here as well. Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together, and I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Gather together and hear you, sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. Now, this is a heavy moment. This is a time of rewards and judgments for the sons of Jacob. And they're probably sweating a little bit. Reuben, of course, the firstborn, is thinking, is he going to give me the blessing of the firstborn? Will he overlook the sin? What does God have in store for me? It's a time of judgment and blessing. In a sense, this prefigures what each of us as believers have to look forward to. We're not going to stand before Jacob, but we will all stand before Jesus 
We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, Paul wrote to the Corinthians. And we will receive rewards for the things that we have been done or we have done in our bodies and how we have served the Lord. We will receive a reward or we will lose the reward. If you're a Christian, you will stand before Christ and you will be rewarded or the reward will be taken away from you. You as a Christian will not stand before another judgment, and that is the great white throne judgment. If you're a believer, God's not going to take you before him and show a video of your life, as I've heard some people describe it, where you sit there in shame and go, oh, yeah, I, I did do that. Oh, <laughs> If you've accepted Christ, you have passed from death unto life. You've escaped that judgment. The judgment of the great white throne is reserved for those of you who do not personally know Jesus Christ. You've rejected God's solution for your sins. It'll be a simple judgment, really. God will open up the book. Your name won't be found in there, and he'll cast you into the lake of fire. If you're a Christian, you'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And the things that you have done to serve the Lord now, he will examine as to why you did them, how you did them, to get the praise of men or the glory of God. What kind of service was rendered unto the Lord? Now, Reuben is found, first of all, being the firstborn. And remember, Reuben being son number one, was at one time the pride and joy of his father. That was his first son. And when he came out of the womb, he thought, all right, I have a boy. And uh, again, I'm giving you just background. For that culture to have a son was the greatest honor. In fact, today, in the Arab culture, the father's name is changed when he has a son. For instance, let's just say that I was a Bedouin living out in Saudi Arabia and my name happened to be Skip. It wouldn't be, but I'll just retain my name for the sake of, uh, of uh, drawing this point. My name's been Skip all my life, but the moment Nathan was born, my name is no longer Skip. My name is now Abu Nathan, father of Nathan. And whenever my friends will see me, they will always call me Abu Nathan. That will be my name henceforth because I've had a son and my life now changes. The relationship changes. It's a great honor. If a daughter was born, the name did not change, nor does it still to this day. That's just part of the culture. Don't blame me for it. That just, that's just the way it is. I, you know, sorry to say Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, the beginning of my strength, the excellence of dignity, and the excellence of power. Don't you know that at this point his heart is jumping? He's excited. He's thinking, ooh, I like it so far. This is great. I'm going to get the right of the firstborn. I'm going to get the blessing, the right of the family priesthood, the right to double the property. I'll be in charge of the family from here on out. Then he says in verse 4, you are unstable as water and you shall not excel. Goes on an upbeat and then just whoosh, after the crescendo, the minor key. You will not excel because you are unstable as water. I would say at this point, like father, like son. Jacob was unstable as water. So was his firstborn. He simply emulated his father. But it was true. He did not excel. He never did excel. The tribe of Reuben never became really great. Uh, the tribe of Reuben was the tribe that joined Korah. When Korah decided to rebel against Moses, back in, up in Numbers chapter 16, they go up to Moses and they say, Hey, who do you think you are, Mo? Thinking that you're the leader? How do you know God picked you? There's a lot of us capable men who can lead the children of Israel. You're taking too much upon yourself saying that you speak for God saying that you're the leader of this congregation. It was the Reubenites who joined with Korah in that rebellion. Reuben was unstable as water. I've learned, living near the ocean growing up, the instability of water. You go out there in the morning, you look at the ocean, it's usually glassy. But just a wind coming by can just whip up the waves and cause a lot of commotion. Water always seeks its own level or a lower level, never goes up. That was Reuben, unstable as water, tossed to and fro. Why? You will not excel 
Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it, he went up to my couch. Now he's uncovering the skeletons in the closet in front of his brothers. They knew what had happened. He's referring back to the time when they had come back in the land. They were up at Shechem. And he took Bilhah, his father's concubine, and had sexual relationships with her, an incestuous relationship. What is interesting is that his father knew about it but did nothing about it at the time. This is some 20 years before, actually some 40 years before this uh, prophecy was given. He did it. Reuben never confessed his sin. He probably thought he got away with it. But your sin will find you out. You will reap what you sow. And Reuben is now, the blessing is taken from him. Verse 5, Simeon and Levi, our brothers, instruments of cruelty are in their habitation. Let not my soul enter their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man. In their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger. For it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. There were, these guys were two peas in a pod. They're brothers. They were united because they both had a very bad temper. When they were up in Shechem, their sister was violated sexually by one of the men of the land. They retaliated by killing everyone in town. Killing everyone. And all they could do is rationalize the event. When Jacob said, what have you done? You've ruined my reputation in the land. You, you killed the whole town. He said, well, they shouldn't have done what they did. And they would just become unglued, temper tantrum at, at the snap of a finger. So he says, cursed be your anger. And he says, uh, I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Levi and Simeon were the two smallest tribes, or the, I should say, not of land allotment, but of people and of significance. Levi, however, makes a comeback. He's cursed in his anger here, but later on, he makes a comeback in his relationship with God. For when Moses takes the children of Israel and he says, who of you is on the Lord's side? The first to respond is Levi. And Levi, of course, takes the priesthood. The Levitical priesthood is named after the tribe of Levi. They don't get any land uh, conferred to them in Israel, but they do get the priesthood. Then he comes to Judah. And, and I bet at this point Judah's sweating a little bit. Because his first three brothers, it didn't turn out good. And so he thinks, oh man. Uh, it was Judah who also was in the plot to sell Joseph into Egypt, though he himself did not... Uh, uh, he wasn't the progenitor of the plot, but he did go along with it. So he's thinking, okay, I've had it now. But he didn't have it. Beautiful work of grace is seen in verse 8. Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. A play on words. Judah means praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion. As a lion, who shall arouse him? Though Judah went along with Joseph selling into Egypt, it was Judah who later on repented. You remember when Benjamin was put in prison or found guilty because of the cup that was in his sack? Judah offered himself. And he said, look, take me, let Benjamin go. You want to kill somebody, kill me. You want to put somebody in prison, put me in there. So he offers himself up. There's a change of heart. And Judah gets a tremendous blessing. All your brothers... And all of the rest of their descendants will bow down before you. It's a prophecy of Jesus Christ who would come from the tribe of Judah. In fact, verse 9 is very prophetic. Judah is a lion's whelp. A lion in Hebrew history has always been a symbol of sovereignty and strength. The king of beasts in the forest. In the book of Revelation... The Apostle John has this tremendous vision. He said, I saw in the right hand of him who sat upon the throne a scroll that was written on the inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to take the scroll and unloose the seals? John said, No one was found in heaven, nor on earth, nor under the earth. 
to take the scroll or even to look upon it. And so I wept much because no one was found worthy to take the scroll and unloose the seals. And then John said, one of the elders said to me, weep not. For behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to take the scroll and to loose the seals. And so John said, I looked back and I saw that in the midst of the throne and in the midst of the four creatures, in the midst of the 24 elders, was a lamb as though it had been slain. The lion of the tribe of Judah was the lamb who had been slain. He was looking, okay, where's the lion? He saw a lamb instead. They were one and the same. One was the kingly name of deity. The other was the position of savior, the lamb who had been slain. Look at this prophecy. It's fabulous. The scepter, watch this. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Scepter being the tribal staff, staff of rulership shall not depart from Judah as a tribe, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. Shiloh, it's an interesting translation. Some of your translations don't say that. They decided to transliterate the Hebrew, which is a difficult transliteration. I think it says, the one to whom it belongs comes. Shiloh comes from the word shalom, which means peace. Jesus would be the prince of peace. Shiloh, the Hebrews have always taught, was another name for the Messiah. And even before Jesus came, it was the Jewish rabbis who knew that the Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah because of this prophecy. And that the tribe of Judah would retain the ability to pass laws, a lawgiver, its tribal sovereignty and identity until the Messiah comes. And that the shifting of power would be an indication that the Messiah had come. Now, There's a few problems. One of the problems is the 70 years captivity, which began in 586 B.C. When the Babylonians came into Judah, took captive all the people, brought them to Babylon. However, they were taken captive, but they never lost their tribal identity or sovereignty. Even as a tribe within the Babylonian confines, they were allowed to pass their own laws. And live with a lot of freedom. So that when they came back, Judah repopulated the land. It was still known as Judah. However, about 40 years before the temple was destroyed, the Romans who occupied the land of Palestine, the Near East, and most of the known world, they were the world governing empire at the time, decided to take away from the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling body in Judah, the right of capital punishment and the giving of those kinds of laws by the Jewish government. They retained the law for themselves. There were certain religious laws, but they always had to be kept in check by the Roman government. When Rome took away the right of capital punishment, one of the ancient rabbis in his writings said that the Jewish leaders put on sackcloth and ashes, tore their clothes and had a procession around Jerusalem saying, Woe unto us, for the scepter has departed from Judah, but the Messiah has not come. What they were unaware of is that during that time of their procession, a few miles north up in Nazareth, a young man was about ready to lay down his carpenter's tools and go down to the Jordan River where John the Baptist would say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and the Messiah was about to come on the scene. The prophecy was fulfilled. The scepter had departed, but Shiloh had come. It goes on to say in verse 11, Binding his donkey to the vine, his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine, his clothes in the blood of of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun shall dwell by the haven of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships. His border shall adjoin Sidon. Interesting prophecy when Joshua brings the children of Israel across the Jordan River and they populate the land. The land of Zebulun takes uh, a portion of land up north in the plains, what they call the plains of Zebulun, which is adjoining the Mediterranean Sea next to another tribe who had the shoreline. Um, after World War I, 
the League of Nations in trying to decide what they're going to do with this land where the Arabs and the Jews wanted at the same time, the land of Israel, Palestine they called it, issued a mandate to England. England was looking for deep water ports that could be sort of a hub, a base in the Mediterranean Sea. And they chose Haifa. They called it in the Plains of Zebulun, which became a very fruitful plain. And today, the city of Haifa is the number one port in the Mediterranean. And that's why uh, some of the Soviet states were and are still interested uh, in that part of the uh, world. Issachar is a strong donkey. How would you like to be Issachar? Lying down between two burdens, he saw that rest was good and the land was pleasant. He bowed his shoulder and became a burden, or to bear a burden, and became a band of slaves. Now, it says Issachar is a strong donkey. He's paying him a compliment. He's saying, you, pal, are a worker. And your tribe will be a working tribe. And that happened. The tribe, though not large in number, was the working class. Located there in the midst of Israel, uh, they were the blue-collar workers, the backbone of the nation. Dan, which means judge. Daniel, which means God is my judge. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. That's an interesting prophecy because one of the most prominent judges in the book of Judges was Samson. He was a Danite. He came from that tribe and he was able to hold back the Philistines single-handedly for a number of years. And so it says, Dan shall be a serpent by the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that its rider shall fall backward. The Philistines hated Samson. He was a thorn in their side because single-handedly by God's help he was able to Keep them, keep them at bay. Keep them back. I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. This could also be seen in a negative sense because it was the tribe of Dan that helped lead the rebellion amidst the tribes of Israel. When Jeroboam, the Ephraimite, when the kingdom split, because he was afraid that many of the people would go down south and worship in the temple of Judah, he erected two calves for false worship, one at Bethel in central Israel, or Shechem, that area, and one up at Dan, the northernmost portion of the land. If you go on our tour to Israel, I'm giving it a plug now, if you go with us in May, we will walk you up through the area of Dan, and we will show you the exact altar. You'll see the very stones and the steps of the altar that Jeroboam built where he put that golden calf for false worship that fulfilled this prophecy, a viper, by the way, that caused the stumbling of the children of Israel. Verse 19, Gad... Gadzooks. Gad, a troop, shall tramp upon him, but he shall triumph at last. Gad settled east of the Jordan. They attacked many of the little tribes around the area, but they were also attacked later on. Bread from Asher shall be rich, and he shall yield royal dainties. Where Asher settled in Israel was a fertile valley. And I've worked... Uh, in some of the fields of Asher. It still yields such beautiful, rich produce, even to this day. The kibbutzim and the moshavim, the farms that are in uh, that part of Israel, still yield uh, the bread and the fruit for Israel. Naphtali, which are the mountains in the plain north of the Sea of Galilee, if you want to find that on your map, is a deer let loose. He gives godly wor goodly words. Now we get to Joseph. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a well. His branches run over the wall. The archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him, and hated him. But his bow remained in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you, and by Almighty God who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lie beneath. Blessings of the breast and of the womb, the blessings of your father have, ex have excelled the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills that shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him who is separate from his brothers. This section of Genesis, this prophecy of Joseph, has been one of my absolute favorite portions of Scripture because Jacob tells Joseph the secret of his strength. He was fruitful, obviously. I mean, he was the prime minister of Egypt, right? 
He was able to save the world from starvation. His branches went over the wall. But he says, Joseph, you are a fruitful branch, a bow by the well. The secret of Joseph's strength is seen in this little analogy of a tree or a branch that is planted by the rivers of water. Very reminiscent of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly and so forth. His delight is in the law of the Lord and his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. What that means is, is that the tree was planted near the source of water. A continual source of refreshment. You don't have to water it with a hose. You don't have to take a bucket out there and make sure the thing grows. It's by the source of water. It's really interesting to look in modern day Israel and go down to the Jordan Valley especially by way of the Judean wilderness. Take a little drive from Jerusalem to uh, Jericho. You go from about 2,500 feet above sea level to 1,290 feet below sea level. By the time you get that low, nothing grows. And the Dead Sea is there. It's dead because it's dead. There's nothing that grows in it. And around the Dead Sea, it's just salt. But you look up the Jordan River, though it's barren everywhere else, and you see these trees that are flourishing by the Jordan River, the lifeblood of the nation of Israel, taking its strength from the source, maintaining a close, intimate relationship. Joseph stuck close to God. He lived close to God. He lived in the fear of the Lord. He tapped into that strength. He never left it. He lived under the eye of God. And so, he's a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a well, and his branches run over the wall. God wants you to become so fruitful that others get blessed by your fruit. God doesn't give you gifts or abilities so that you can get blessed out of your gourd on your own. God wants your fruit to go to others. God wants to make your life a blessing. In John chapter 7, Jesus stood up on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. And he said, if anyone believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his inmost being will flow rivers of living water. He himself will be satisfied, but he will be able to bless and satisfy others by the Spirit of God working in him. When I used to live in Huntington Beach, my neighbors grew lemons. I had a little garden of artichokes out back, but... They always, you know, they didn't grow too tall. But these lemons, this lemon tree would grow up and its branches would go over my wall. Now the state law is that anything growing over my wall belongs to me. Even though it's their tree. So I took advantage of the law without any guilt or remorse. Every time the lemons are ripe, I just go out there and just start picking them. Their tree was so fruitful, I benefited from it. With great joy, I'd make fresh lemonade in the afternoon on a hot summer day. Joseph went down to Egypt. God blessed him. With the integrity and ingenuity God gave him, he was able to save the world from famine, bring his brothers and his father into the land of Egypt. His branches certainly went over the wall. One of the best illustrations, and I'm speaking a lot of Israel tonight, I guess I'm kind of homesick. I lived there once, and it's, it's like a second home. The ancient rabbis would compare the lives of people to the two bodies of water in Israel and say, you are either like the Sea of Galilee or you're like the Dead Sea. The Sea of Galilee is flourishing. It's the lifeblood, that and the Jordan River, to the nation of Israel. It takes in water and things grow around the Sea of Galilee and fish swim in the Sea of Galilee and then there's an, not only an inlet but an outlet. As the snow melts off Mount Hermon and trickles down into the Sea of Galilee, there's also an outlet at the southern end that goes all the way down to Israel and dumps out into the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea only has an inlet, no outlet. That's why it's dead. It only takes in. It never gives out. There's a tremendous analogy in that. If you take in and give out, you will have life abounding in you and around you. If you just take in but never get out, give out, you'll shrivel up. You'll be like the Dead Sea. You need an outlet as well as an inlet. You need to receive, but then also to give. Joseph was like that. Then we get to Benjamin. Benjamin, remember he's the youngest kid, Benji. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. 
In the morning he shall devour the prey, and at night he will divide the spoil. I believe that this is prophetic to the aggressive nature that eventually portrayed the tribe of Benjamin. In the book of Judges, there are several chapters or several instances in the chapters that speak of the aggressive and even warlike nature of Benjamin in protecting Israel against her enemies. Of course, later on, uh, Saul and Jonathan, uh, both strong leaders, come from the tribe of Benjamin. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel, and this is what their fathers spoke to them. And he blessed them, and he blessed each one according to his own blessing. And he charged them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephron the Hittite as a possession for a burial place. It's kind of interesting that this guy really knew his family history. He knew who Grandpa bought the field from. Yeah, you know, my uh, dad told me that Grandpa bought this field, this grave, and uh, he talks about the transaction. He really knows his family history. So he says, I don't want to be buried here. Take me back into the land. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. There I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is there were purchased from the sons of Heth. When Jacob had finished commanding his sons... He drew his feet up into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. Very suggestive verses. He's old, man. This guy's 147. He still has his feet on the ground. He was sort of born that way. He was on the run all of his life. He came out grabbing his brother's heel. He connived. He ran to Uncle Abe and he ran back. He was chased. He was always on the move. He's leaning up now on a staff. And after it's all over, he just sort of expires and they take and put his feet up. Why, is he, why does he have a staff, by the way? You say, well, because he's old. More than that. Remember, he had a wrestling match. He was living by his own strength until he got to Peniel. And that night, an angel of God wrestled with him. And eventually touched his hip and he limped and he had to have that staff. He's leaning up on it. That weakness became his strength. He finally learned to trust God. He breathed his last. He was gathered to his people. Now, do you remember how this man described his life? As he stood before Pharaoh last week, what did he say? He said, hey man, how old are you? This is 17 years before. He said, I'm 130. Few and evil have been the days of my life. Think of his life. Took his brother's birthright, lied and connived Uncle Laban, ran from him, had household idols uh, in his family, and just had years where he didn't trust God. Those were the evil spots. And he said, few. Now, would you say that the years of Jacob were few? 147? Or at that time, 130? Few? Well, then compared to eternity, 130 years isn't much. And I think that Jacob viewed eternity. And I think that when you get to be about 130, you really start viewing eternity more than when you're a lot younger. Comparison to what's ahead, I haven't lived very long. He's still living today. You say, how do you know he's still living today? Well, he said to Moses. In fact, Jesus brought up this point in the Gospels. That God is the God of the living, not of the dead. He said, don't you remember when God appeared to Moses and said, I am, not I was, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was the point that Jesus made. It was in the present tense. He's the God of the living, not of the dead. All right, let's go on. Oh, we have a few minutes to finish the book. Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. And so the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for him, for such are the days required for those who are embalmed. And the Egyptians mourned for him seventy days. Quite an elaborate funeral. Are any of you interested in how they embalmed the dead in Egypt? I should ask your permission for this, because some of you, as I get into it, might not be too excited about it. But are you interested? Okay. 
the first procedure was to extract the brain. The brain was extracted through the nasal cavity through a crooked wire. It was... I asked. I'll tell you, uh, well, let me just finish. I'll tell you why I'm telling you this, because to this date, you can go over to London, England, in the British Museum, and you can look upon the preserved remains of the very Pharaoh to whom Moses said, let my people go. And the hair is still intact on his body. I've looked at him. I've looked upon the very face that Moses looked upon, preserved in mummy form. took these guys a long time, a very expensive and belaboring procedure. Secondly, after the brain was removed with the wire, an incision was made in the left lower quadrant of the abdominal cavity and the visceral organs were removed and cleansed, sometimes removed completely, at other times put back. If they were removed, they were kept in vases. They were preserved for generations to come. The inside of the body cavity was washed, was cleansed with antiseptics, uh, with oil of cedar, and with palm wine. Then sometimes the viscera was put back, but usually they would then pack the inside of the body with myrrh and cinnamon. Because let's face it, bodies decay and you want to put as much uh, perfume and aftershave on as you can to, to uh, you know, give it a pleasant aroma. Uh, after that, the body was sewn up and steeped in a nitre compound for 30 days. This preservative for 30 days the body was kept in. After that, they would take about 8 inches wide of cloths and about 8 feet long, and they would saturate them with a gum, and they would wrap the body, the fingers, you know, the hands, the arms, and just like in the movies that you've seen with mummies, they would wrap them all the way up. Then they would encase the body in a compound of cloth, saturated on the inside with a lime compound that hardened, sort of like a cement shell. They'd put that over the body. Uh, and then finally they would put a solid wood encasement over the body, and... Uh, if they were a king or a ruler, they would put sometimes gold around it. If you've ever seen the uh, um, King Tut and the treasures of Egypt, you see the elaborate death mask that was put on this young king. And just uh, layer after layer after labor, they would make carvings, hieroglyphics, and uh, ornate paintings upon that casket. And the bodies were preserved incredibly. To this day, morticians marvel at the ability of the Egyptians. Scientists marvel at the ability of the Egyptians to preserve a body, but it took them 70 days sometimes. Up to 40 days, and the whole funeral procession was 70 days in Egypt. I'm convinced that if you could go to Hebron, which we've gone to several times and seen the burying place of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, if you were to be able to excavate, you'd find the remains of Jacob probably in perfect tact, or in, in very good tact, just like of the Pharaoh of Egypt. I mean, if the Pharaoh of Egypt and, and the ancient rulers are in such good shape today, you'd probably find old Jacob uh, still in pretty good shape because of the embalming methods of the Egyptians. So, a little side trivia for you. When the days of mourning were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the hearing of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I'm dying. In my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan, there you shall bury me. Now, therefore, please let me go up and bury my father, and I'll come back. And Pharaoh said, Go up, bury your father, as he made you swear. So Joseph went to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his house, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as the house of Joseph, his brothers, his father's house, only the little ones and the flocks and the herds they left in the land of Goshen. How come? Pharaoh wanted to make sure they came back. He needed Joseph. Can you imagine what the Canaanites thought? I've seen the hieroglyphics of the ancient burial processions of the Egyptians, and it's ornate, if the hieroglyphics are accurate. Uh, several servants before and behind in this incredible boat-like casket with gold and draperies, you know, going through the land of Canaan down to Hebron. It must have been quite a spectacle. 
So we went down there, and uh, verse 10, they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan. They moored him there with great and solemn lamentation. He observed seven days of mourning for his father. And when the inhabitants of the land of the Canaanites saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning for the Egyptians, of the Egyptians. Keen eye for the obvious. Therefore, its name was called Abel Mitzrayim, which is beyond the Jordan. So his sons did for him just as he commanded them. His sons carried him to the land of Canaan, buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite, his property for his burial. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers, and all who went up to bury his father. If you ever go to Israel and the West Bank settles down a little bit, which doesn't look too promising in the near future. But if you can, if you can make it down to Hebron, there you will find this huge elaborate building built by Herod the Great before the time of Christ. The remarkable thing about this building is that he did it to honor the patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. But the stones that Herod the Great used which are typical Herodian structure with a recessed interface uh, around the parameter of the stone, is in perfect tact. And you can get an idea of what the temple looked like at the time of Christ by viewing the cave of Machpelah. It's an incredible, elaborate thing. The uh, Muslims have taken it over and it's become a mosque. But you can still visit if, if you have the guts to uh, uh, go to that part of the country. When Joseph's brother saw that their father was dead, they said, now listen to their guilt complex, perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent messengers to Joseph saying, before your father died, he commanded saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. Now please forgive the trespass of your servants, the servants of uh, the God of your father. And Joseph wept as he spoke to them. I don't know that Jacob really said that or if they said that he said that because they're so guilt-ridden and they're afraid. Whenever you view a, a person suspiciously, often when you do, you reveal your own character. And they're thinking, oh, dad's dead, off of the next. They were just revealing their own guilt complex. They had been guilty for years. That conscience had never been relieved. Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we are your servants. Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Joseph lived by Romans 8.28. Yeah, a lot of bad stuff happened to me. You ripped me off. You sold me into Egypt. I got put in prison. They left me there for two years. I was falsely accused, but all things work together for good to those that love God. And I'm a recipient of God's goodness. You meant it for evil, so what? God overrode your decision. And I'm not mad at you. Isn't that glorious forgiveness? He also lived by Romans 12. Never repay evil for evil. Give room for God's wrath. Let him avenge. Somebody did you wrong. Let God take care of them. Don't figure out a way to get back. Now therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you. What a guy. And for your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph dwelt in the land of Egypt he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. According to the Egyptians, that was the perfect span of a man's life, showing that God had favor upon him. I considered that the perfect age, the ideal age. Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. The children of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were also brought upon Joseph's knees. And Joseph said to his brethren, I'm dying. Don't know how many of them were left. But he said, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 100, 
and 10 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Later on, they carry his bones or his body, and they take it back to the land of Canaan. So if you could uncover Joseph's body to this day, you would probably see Joseph pretty well preserved. Wouldn't it be fascinating just to see what he looked like after thousands of years? Well, he didn't look that great now. I looked at Pharaoh, but you know, listen, when I looked at Pharaoh in the British Museum, he still had most of his teeth. You know, I mean, I know people that are 60, 70 that don't have their teeth. This guy's a couple thousand years, a few thousand years old. He's still got his teeth. So the Egyptians did a pretty good job of preservation. What a book we've just read. Man, we've spent a lot of time in it, but we've seen the origins, right? We've seen the beginning of the heavens and the earth, the creation. It began with the glorious blaze in heaven. It ended with bones in a casket in Egypt begins with life, it ends with death. It begins with a blessing, it ends with a curse because of sin. In the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. God meant business. And death entered society, not only physically but spiritually. I'm kind of sentimental at this point after reading about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. We've sort of become friends with them. We know what their character is like. We learn that we're a lot like them. We learned that even though they were heroes of faith, they failed a lot of the time, and that gives us great hope, right? They weren't perfect. They blew it. But God still looked at them through his righteousness and elevated them. Jacob especially, what, what a rat. But what a recipient of God's love. And it never was too late for him. He finally started walking in the Spirit toward the end of his life. But I would like you at this point to turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 11. Oh, you don't have to turn there. Let me just read you a verse. verse 13 we read these all died in faith not having received the promises but having seen them afar off were assured of them embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth for those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland and truly if they had been called if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out they would have had opportunity to return, but now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to call them or to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph lived at very precarious times, but they knew that something was planned for them by God. They looked for a heavenly country. Abraham looked for another city, it says in Hebrews, whose builder and maker was God. They lived sometimes 140 years or 130 years or 110 years. But compared to eternity, they were few. Every single one of you in this room will live forever. All of you will live consciously, with conscious, all of forever and ever and ever. This life is not the end. You say, now wait a minute, I thought Christians have eternal life only. Well, the word eternal life or everlasting life is better translated age-abiding life. It's a quality of life, not just a quantity of life. You have now at this point everlasting life. And it just happens to last forever and ever and ever. In a different realm, you'll be seeing God face to face. If you're not a believer tonight, you too will live forever. Apart from God, estranged from God in another country that you wish you were not. Jesus gave a parable. He spoke of, not a parable, he gave a story of a guy named Lazarus and a very rich man. Both of them died. Lazarus was carried to a place of comfort. Excuse me. The, uh, yeah, and the rich man was carried to a place of torment because he lived in unrighteousness all of his life. After death, Jesus said he still had consciousness. He felt pain. He said, Abraham, seeing him afar off, Dip my tongue in water and refresh me, for I am tormented by this heat. Abraham said, my son, I, can't, I cannot. You had the good things in this life. Lazarus had the, the, the poor things. He lived a righteous life. You didn't. And there's a great gulf. I can't go over there. You can't come here. But what's interesting is that even after death, being in hell, he had the consciousness, the ability to feel and to know being in misery. He had the quality of living forever. 
just like these men of old, the men of faith. You will live forever. Question is where? How will you spend eternity? Now is the time when you can make a choice. You can't make a choice then. God gives you lots of chances now. He's been called the God of the second chance. Now he's the God of the third chance, and the fourth chance, and the fifth chance. And if you failed him 30 times, he's the God of the 31st chance. Have you gone back and failed him 152 times? He's the God of the 153rd chance. You've got a lot of chances now. No chances then. If you really mean business with God, God will receive you. God will take you as you are. But you must come to him. It's not an automatic thing. As many as received him, he gave them the power to become children of God. Do that tonight. Ask him in your heart. 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 Tonight.